This is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell in the West, the global North, whatever you want to call the old European colonial powers. If we do learn about European imperial ambitions in Africa during the 19th century, we are taught it was an era of colonialism. In reality, it was a time when Europe inflicted wars of dispossession on all of Africa, forcing the people off of what was once their land, stripping Africans of their dignity. When this happened, the ancestors of today's South Africans cried, the world is dead. They had lost their land and have been worldless ever since. As our guest points out today, that sense of worldlessness means to have no place to live nor to be buried. To have no place to be alive, nor to be dead. It means a life where the most pressing daily questions are where, when, and how to live, where, when, and how to die. This is particularly the case in South Africa today because of an already devastated economy becoming unbelievably worse during the pandemic with record unemployment compounded by a state program of austerity. There's also corruption, which our guest says led to the theft of billions from the nation's COVID relief plans. Then there's the deadly violence following former President Jacob Zuma's refusal to accept his sentencing on corruption charges, all in a nation where the majority is marginalized and minoritized. We'll learn about impoverished black South Africans' struggle for land and dignity in a few when we will be speaking with essayist and novelist Panache Chigumadze who posted the Africa is a Country article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. She's also a columnist for the New York Times and contributing editor of the Johannesburg Review of Books, as well as the founding editor of Vanguard Magazine, a platform for young black women coming of age in post-apartheid South Africa. Also a PhD candidate in African and African American studies at Harvard University. I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Anything new by you, Richard? Oh, had a rough drive up here today. Really? I noticed you're a little bit later than yes. you usually are. You're usually they're, very uh, punctual. They're, they're repaving Crawford, I mean Pulaski Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> from from like Addison all the way up to uh Peterson. Oh really? <laughs> Quite an experience. So, uh, when does Pulaski become Crawford anyway? Well, it used to be Crawford all the way until uh, they changed the name. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I was <laughs> unaware of that. Because Crawford, I think, is named, uh, isn't that Billy Crawford, the guy who is Sauganash? Uh, oh, I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Uh, so, uh, this weekend, Richard, I am very, very, very excited to have absolutely no plans whatsoever. Oh, I think you have a plan. What's that? You need to get me some dates for your Oh, tickets. yeah, to go see Banksy. That's yes, right. Sir. That is the one thing I was going to be doing this weekend. <laughs> Damn it, now I've got something to do. I wasn't going to be doing anything as far as I knew, and I couldn't be more happy. Not having to do a damn thing means, of course, I will likely be doing all of those things I've not gotten around to doing, like telling Richard when I want to go see the Banksy show, because I have not had any time whatsoever. Well, now I have time to do absolutely nothing, which means I'll likely 
be busy all weekend doing everything I've not had time to do, which seems about typical for me. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is one nice thing you can say about the ruling class? <laughs> what is one nice thing that you can say about the ru- global ruling class? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise, including our trucker's cap, our winter beanie, our t-shirt, our tote bag, our flash drive of a collection of dozens of interviews from this century so far. It's called This Is Hell Interviews from a Guide to the 21st Century. We also have a camp... uh, stainless steel camping mug as well you can find out all that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support we don't get any money from any commercial sponsors or we don't get any money from grants we're not profitable enough to be a not-for-profit so it's all on you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff looks back at some predictions. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Panache on South Africa. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, we are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, with shows beginning weekdays at 10 a.m. We are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with that position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely, stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You, too, can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and at our site, we include a poll quote from the interview to give listeners a little taste of what they are about to hear. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here on our show, in our studio, or are interested in contributing online, Email us at chuck at thisishell.com. We got an email just before this morning's show at chuck at thisishell.com from Vess, who writes, Chuck and team, I've been listening to your amazing show for the last six months. I've gone back and listened to every episode published in the past two years. Fortunately, for those of us that found you recently, the topics covered years ago are as prescient and feel as fresh as ever. The information is beyond enlightening, and you are one of the greatest interviewers I have come across. Unfortunately for the world, the topics are evergreen, as it seems the urgent, most pressing issues of a few years ago 
are still ongoing. I was touched by a letter written to you a while back. The letter was written by a young lady named Courtney. She expressed the same feelings I have felt for at least 20 years of my 35 years on this planet. We are forced against our will into the cruel, unforgiving meat grinder that is hypercapitalism. I'm forced to swallow my own morals and ethics each day and work in a job that leaves me feeling hollow, unfulfilled, and like an accomplice to the exploitation of others in order to keep living in the very same cruel, unforgiving meat grinder of a world. For the first time in my life, I am doing marginally well as far as finances go. Not great, but better than I have ever done. In the end, I am not grateful for what I have, but resentful that not everyone is able to have the same. Your show, your outlook, your guests, it all makes these dire, bleak days a little more tolerable. Thanks for everything you, your entire team, and the listeners do each day. I can't tell you how appreciative I am. I'll make it a point to visit the second floor of West Devon Avenue the next time I make it to Chicago. A forever appreciative listener from the rural Bible Belt, Vess. P.S. Since I'm doing marginally well, I bought a This Is How Red and White trucker cap a few minutes ago. Thanks, Vess. And as my alarm did not go off this morning as scheduled... I really needed your words of encouragement this morning, so thanks again, Vess. Coming up, the struggle for land and dignity in South Africa. Not only will Richard have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, we'll also be telling you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering his moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff looks back at some predictions. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people. This is hell in South Africa. Inequality is rampant. Unemployment is skyrocketing. The majority are minoritized and marginalized. Land is still held in a few white hands as impoverished blacks are victims of deadly violence. Here to help us have a better understanding of why things have gone so bad in post-apartheid South Africa, essayist and novelist Panache Chigamadzi posted the AfricaIsACountry.com article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. Welcome to This Is Help. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm just wondering when you say this is hell and um, it's a little bit too apt. Yes, it is. It's a little. Unfortunately, <laughs> I've been doing this for almost 26 years now, and people right. ask me, why do you do only talk about such hellish topics? I'm just stuck because it's the name of the show. <laughs> You're stuck in the inferno. <laughs> right. Uh, you write that the world is dead. Our ancestors cried as the 1779 to 1879 wars of dispossession expanded the reach of 1652's settler colonial conquest deep into the South Africa interior. Our ancestors cried that it was not only black people who suffered a social death, but the land. Indeed, the world suffered death, too. Of course, here in the States, as I was saying in the introduction, and likely throughout the West or Global North or whatever you want to call it, the century of wars are not called wars of dispossession. It's simply the era of colonialism. What is missed when we see this as an era of colonialism instead of a time of dispossession of land and people, of the world and society dying through dispossession? Well, of course, from my vantage point growing up in South Africa, colonialism obviously has a negative connotation. It's something that is going to be associated with the disposition of Black people, of my ancestors, right? So it's, it's. I suppose when I'm here in the West, the way in which people can talk about colonialism in sort of very benign terms and sort of, you know, the age of expansion, the age of imperialism, as if that kind of era was 
just a natural expansion of, you know, um, the extension of European civilization, right? Um, and a just, you know, um, a really ratifying and the sense of the right of conquest that, of course, um, these peoples need to be brought into our orbit, into uh, Western civilization. But it was an incredibly violent process that is still unfolding. Um, and I think what's really interesting, especially, I think, you know, I was born in Zimbabwe, grew up in South Africa, um, and I'm here in the United States. And these are all three settler colonies. Um, and there's a way in which we sometimes uh, take for granted, or very often take for granted, the legitimacy of the settler states that were created. So we do not think about the kind of theft of land that comes in. So we say this is a nation of immigrants. Rather, this is an a, a, a nation of settlers. And when we say the settler, or we, where we foreground settler colonialism, it's to foreground the violence, the theft, the genocide, the slavery, um, the forced labor that was required to create these nation states by 1776 in South Africa, the Union of South Africa in um, 1910, um, in Zimbabwe in 1922, or Rhodesia rather at the time. Um, and subsequently, the idea that we are simply trying to democratize these states is quite problematic because we're not going back to the original sins, if you want to call it that, but as well as really examining the kind of violence that maintains these states. What is the violence, both economic, psychic, existential, um, epistemic, that require that is required to maintain the settler state such that this is only land, their land in metaphor, their land in memory, right? So that's really, what I'm interested in the piece um, in doing is to really look at how South Africa in its extremities is really emblematic of many of the conditions of the world. It's the, really the exception that proves the rule. Um, Stuart Hall often referred to South Africa as the limit case in the theoretical sense, as well as the um, limit case in the, in the political sense, as well as the test case in terms of thinking about how we can organize and how we can struggle for liberation for all people, but of course the most marginalized groups of people. So that's really sort of what I'm interested in in this piece is speaking to how South Africa can both understand, help us understand um, the condition of capitalism, but in particular racial capitalism in the world um, that you describe as being in a state of, of health. And you were one of the things that you just mentioned was the legitimacy that the nation states within Africa have, the legitimacy that they give to colonialism is the only way that uh, Africa as a continent can overcome the legacy of colonialism to no longer have those borders that create those nation states. Well, I think it's twofold, just to, to clarify. What I mean by this is, and I'm specifically speaking about settler states, so not just on the, uh, the, the African continent, because America is a settler colony, right? If you speak to indigenous people from their vantage point, this is a, vantage, this is a settler colony, and it is illegitimate in as far as is we are ratifying the right of conquest, right? And what I mean by that is that there has been that theft of land, and land hasn't been returned, the sovereignty has been, um, is not recognized, right? Uh, beyond um, people being put into tribal reserves. And we see a similar kind of thing in South Africa. So very often what you will see in South Africa is that we're hailed as the most, uh, the world's um, most liberal constitution, right? And this is sort of in 1994 in South Africa, this liberal constitution is hailed worldwide. And one of the most important things um, and things that really cement our dispossession in South Africa 
is the right of or the the um, the maintenance of property rights. Now you then have to ask, how did those property rights come into being? Who owns property and how did that property come into being? So importantly in the piece, one of the things I talk about is um, the 1912 Land Act, the 1930 Native Land Act. And this was a land or an act that was incredibly um, destructive. It pushed off the black majority onto 7% of the land and putting the white minority onto 93% of the land. Today in South Africa, white South Africans own more than 77% of the land. Black South Africans own 1% of the land. Um, so that's the kind of dispossession that is then ratified when you have this right, the, the recognition of property rights without actually then questioning how did this property come into being in the very first place. That's why we have many battles over redistribution um, of land, whether we should have land redistribution without constant compensation and those kinds of, of, of battles within the South African uh, body politic. And you have a number of legal uh, scholars in South Africa who have been speaking about the post-conquest constitution, i.e. we're ratifying the conquest, we're not undoing the initial dispossession that put us in this position as black people. And I think there are many parallels that can be drawn in the American context as well. So why wasn't that dispossession undone? Why wasn't the 1912 land uh, agreement, why wasn't that torn up once apartheid, uh, once apartheid was ended and the post-apartheid government came in? Well, there's, <laughs> there's a whole body of scholarship around that, but you have to think about the, the time in which in the global political economy um, that saw the end of apartheid. This is, you know, as Fukuyama said, the end of history, right? So the triumph of neo neoliberal democratic or the neoliberal democratic order. Um, and so you're seeing people like Nelson Mandela going to Davos, for example. Um, the IMF is heavily involved in the drawing up of a land reform program in South Africa and particularly a market-based a land reform program. So we call it willing buyer, willing seller. And that's similar to what happened in, in, um, in Zimbabwe, where I'm also from. And so what we saw over the years um, is this implementation. I grew up in that era of willing buyer, willing seller. Um, and it simply doesn't work. First of all, in order to be able to pay the white farmers for um, the land that was you know, forcibly taken in the very first place, it's just, it's just impossible within the GDP. You won't be able to afford it. And very often what you find was the inflation of prices, all kinds of things such that all the targets that were met or set over a series of years were never met. Um, and so what you found is that right now there is a huge debate around the question of or within the constitution um, whether land reform should happen without compensation. Um, on one hand, I would also say that that's a very sort of uh, presentist understanding of the, the, the battle um, for land or for the, the struggle for land reform in South Africa or return to land for Africans, because I think Ultimately, it's not just about the neoliberal turn within the global political economy where South Africa decided to, um, you know, adopt uh, a sort of a neoliberal uh, market kind of orientation within its political programming. Um, you do see that, you know, there have been different kinds of political orientations over the years, over the long duration of South African struggle, where, for example, the African National Congress, what we call the Congress tradition, which again was founded, in fact, incidentally, this is Nelson Mandela's um, African National Congress, was founded in 1912, a year ahead of the 1913 Native Land Act. 
And but what you found at the time was that the 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 articulation of the struggle at the time was along the lines of petitioning the uh, British monarchy to protect or to at least recognize the rights of a particular grouping of Africans within the settler state, within the Union of South Africa. So i.e. recognize the rights of a group of landed and educated black South Africans to be or participate within the apparatus of the settler state. Whereas later on, you then found more radical programs of action, which are saying that actually this is not a struggle for democratization. It is not a multiracial struggle for democratization within a settler state. This is a Black-led struggle for the return of land to Black people. And this is why we have the split years later in 1955 over the Freedom Charter, where the Pan-Africanist Pan Congress leaves um, the African National Congress because of their disagreement about the terms in which they're framing the struggle. So famously, the Freedom Charter, the first line says that this land belongs to all who live in it. And here they are questioning, the Pan-Africanist Congress is, is coalescing around the idea of the return of the sovereignty to Black people, to Africans, and such that anybody else who recognizes that this is first and foremost an African country um, and respects that can form part of this polity, but we need to recognize that there was an initial and unjust conquest. And I think that's the key difference in the posture of struggle is to say, are we calling for a democratization or we might even call it a civil rights struggle within an illegitimate state or illegitimate formation, or are we calling for a fundamentally different political formation, right? And this is why we call the likes of the Pan-Africanist Congress, the Black Consciousness Movement, um, part of what uh, you know, legal scholars and philosophers such as Ndumiso Tladla and Joel Madiri, the Azanian political tradition, who have questioned the legitimacy of South Africa as a settler state. I know that's a bit, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of South African history, but I think what it, one of the things about it is, is that um, what's really productive about paying attention to South Africa and its various struggles for freedom is the ways in which it illuminates many of the questions that we're struggling with today. So for example, South Africa, many people don't really know, is really the home or the ground that created the terminology um, or the theorizations for what we now understand as racial capitalism out of many of these struggles um, over what do we do with the state of affairs, how do we characterize the state of affairs? Um, long before it was taken up by the likes of Stuart Hall and Cedric Robinson, it was South African Marxists who had theorized racial capitalism by virtue of paying attention to something that seemed peculiar and deviated from our standard understandings of how capital and modes of production are working. Um, and so I think in part of these kinds of struggles and in the, the insistent critiques and uh, study of how the state of affairs have come to be in South Africa, where you have all of these extremities coalescing at really the bottom of, of, of the African continent, there's much that can be revealed, not just about South Africa and not just about the black world, but the world in general. You know, several places online, including Wikipedia, and I'm not suggesting Wikipedia is a reliable source in any way, right. only that it reflects what might be popular, popularly held beliefs. Right. And it's been said by many guests on our show that racial capitalism is a concept coined by Cedric J. Robinson in his book, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, published in 1983. What do we miss in understanding 
black Marxism and racial capitalism when we do not recognize that South Africa is the place where this started? I think what's really important, and I think, you know, what was productive with what Cedric Robinson did was to take the very particularized understandings and theorizations that South African Marxists had created through the theorization of, of, of racial capitalism. And I'll give you a brief intellectual history of it just now, um, and then generalized it to the rest of the world. But if in thinking about how this, um, this theorization of, of um, racial capitalism comes to be, it's to even go back all the way uh, to the grand architect of apartheid, who is Hendrik Verwoerd, um, who um, was South Africa's first sociologist. He set up our first sociology department at the University of Stellenbosch, which is really or was the intellectual seat of apartheid. And in the early 1930s, he infamously, having studied in the US um, and many other places overseas, um, in setting up this department, he was one of the spearheads of a famous 1932 Carnegie Commission on the Poor Whites, right, which is understood to be the blueprint for apartheid. And so, of course, you're here in Carnegie, and you know what you're hearing is this, this American philanthropic capital, which in the post-emancipation or post-slavery age in the South, was concerned with what do we do with the problem of poor whites who now have to compete with formerly enslaved black people. It's a similar kind of concern in South Africa, and there are many parallels between the American South and South Africa in terms of segregation, separate development, many of those kinds of policies. Um, and so that is really how sociology is, is, or at least in the reactive apartheid sense, is formed. And there's a huge kind of alignment with sociologists and power in South Africa. But automatically after the instantiation of, of apartheid in 1948, there begins to be a kind of um, sense of becoming critical of what the apartheid state is doing. Um, but one of the theorizations is a sociological critique, which is the idea that apartheid really is the product of irrational racial beliefs. And if we continue to develop the market, um, many of these or the worst of these um, irrational racial beliefs will be ameliorated. So i.e. the free market will solve this problem, right? And in fact, it is, um, it is kind of hindering apartheid to, or rather it is hindering capitalist production to continue with apartheid. That was the liberal consensus, right? And at the same time, you have the South African Communist Party, um, as well as the ANC, who had theorized what we call um, colonialism of a special type. And this was the idea, the thesis of two South Africans, a white South Africa that is overdeveloped, highly um, capitalist and industrialized, and a black South Africa that is underdeveloped and a feudal order. And so what happens in the wake of um, 1960, the Sharpeville massacre, there's not a lot of organizing happening or mass protests have, have disappeared really in South Africa because of the mass state repression. Um, and so there's a massive challenge then um, of organizing and much of the organizing um, energy is going into campus organizing, particularly through the National Union of South African Students. With this National Union of South African Students, this is really the, the vanguard of uh, campus liberalism, what we call in South Africa non-racialism. And so one person who becomes really important and a group of people really led by Steve Biko, who then leads what we know as the Black Consciousness Movement, who infamously or famously in 1968 leave NUSA saying, Black man, you're on your own. And they are very much invested in centralizing race and the idea that this needs to be a Black struggle for Black self-determination 
on the basis that they had found that their white allies had been uninterested or unwilling to un forego their own interests in ensuring the end of apartheid, or particularly in ensuring the interests of black black students and black people in general. So infamously, there's a, there's a point at which uh, they're at a, a student conference and we have the police are going to come to um, remove black students because there's a 72 hour curfew or 72 hour ban on black people being in white areas because this was a conference organized at the at Rhodes University, which is a white university. And Steve Beacon, in his comments said, well, if the police are going to come and remove us violently, we need the white students to stand in front of us or rather lay in front of the police vans. And infamously, the white students wouldn't do that. And they took this to be, you know, after a series of disagreements to say, well, look, this is proof of the fact that we have fundamentally different interests and you're not willing to forego or really have skin in the game. Now, this I say this, or I highlight this because this black consciousness movement was highly critical of the white liberal left establishment. And it really represented a fundamental crisis intellectually and politically around the legitimacy of the white liberal left. People like Alan Patton, for example, who was really, and I mean, many of your listeners would know, Cry the Beloved Country. Those kinds of liberals at the time were incredibly hurt and felt um, that these black students were being ungrateful. But what this did um, allow was for fundamental reconfiguration of the race class problematic in theorizing South Africa, such that by already 1970 and 1972, we get one of the first pieces or essays that begin to theorize capitalist modes of production as a product of racial um, racial planning. So, for example, in 1972, there's an essay by Harold Wolpe called Capitalism and Cheap Labor Power, which is really looking at the effect of land and um, or land theft, as well as um, cheap labor that is produced through the migrant labor system. And for your listeners who don't know, the migrant labor system comes into being in order to produce cheap labor in the South African economy. So what happens is that, you know, through the late Native Land Act, we have black people are pushed onto these unarable un lands or pieces of land, these reserves where black women and older people are supposed to tend to and create a subsistence uh, living and existence for themselves what, that is going to subsidize the labor of black men who are then moving into mines, into towns and onto farms and such that the economy no longer has to pay for a family wage because they are subsidized by black women who are living in these reserves, which is why we end up having class systems and all kinds of influx controls to ensure that there's the artificial depression of black wages through the fundamental and systematic dispossession of black families and destruction of black families. And that's one of the things I highlight in the piece that we're still living with that, the, the, the effect of this wounded kinship that is at the bedrock of racial capitalism. That's one of the things that he's highlighting in this piece, but it was really important in disrupting the sociological critique of apartheid, the idea that in fact, race is only ancillary to the concerns of capital. By 1976, we then have the anti-apartheid movement in apartheid writing the first piece to use, or at least the first known piece to use the word racial capitalism. It's called um, Foreign Capital and the Reproduction of Racial Capital in South Africa. And this was part of the boycott movement. They were calling for uh, the end of foreign investment in South Africa because we could see that it actually um, fosters the worst of the apartheid system. And incidentally, 
1976 is also the year where we have the June 76 Soweto uprisings or the massacre of black students of the black consciousness movement that really sort of brought the world's attention to the atrocities of South Africa. And this paper helps us to see this paper written by Martin Legasic and David Hempson, who are South African Marxists exiled in London, helps us to see that these things are not outside of each other. So there is pressure on the likes of the UK, the United States to pull out of South Africa because that capital is actually fostering this black death, this anti-black violence that we're seeing in South Africa. And now importantly, one of the important spaces in the UK, and this is where a lot of Marxist and you know, important theorizations are happening with the new left, um, we start seeing that um, there's a really important journal, Race and Class, uh, by the Institute of Race Relations in the UK. People like Neville Alexander, who is a South African Marxist, is writing and producing his work there because this paper is interested in, in Black and Third World Revolution. People like Cedric Robinson are moving back and forth and coming to the UK. And, in, and importantly, he spends some time there at the Institute of Race Relations and he, uh, he publishes some of his work there. So by 1980, for example, we have Stuart Hall's infamous, or really not infamous, a famous paper of his race uh, structures of domination and, and, and articulation, or rather race articulation and structures of domination, which draws on that 1972 piece by Harold Wolf. Right in then articulating um, a racial capitalism, but or a theory of racial capitalism, but generalized for the rest of the world. And this is in 1980. Although he doesn't use the word racial capitalism, but it is again using the South African critiques to critique the sociological understandings of race and like, also critiquing the economic determinism as well. By 1983. Uh, we then have Cedric Robinson publishing Racial Capitalism, and this is after years. And in fact, we know that he spent his time working at uh, working on, on, on the book while he was at the Institute of Race Relations. So there's the circulation of these ideas with all these um, you know, South Africans who are exiled. And of course, there's going to be the, the exchange of ideas. And this is how we then come to have this theorization of racial capitalism. And that's really what is obscured when we only understand racial capitalism to have come out of almost so generous in 1983 with, with, with black Marxism. And there's a really great book right now from uh, Josh Myers. Um, I think it's coming out in November, which really speaks to a lot of this intellectual history. And recently he did a, a great video. If you go into the website of the Institute of Race Relations and speaking to the influence of this time um, on him, his wife, um, Elizabeth um, Robinson, and how this fermentation of ideas very much in a transatlantic understanding of how race and capitalism is working is what helps us then get to black Marxism and then the theorizations of racial capitalism. Greatest answer to a question ever. I am <laughs> telling you, that was amazing. That was really amazing. I'm going to probably go back and listen to that like three or four more times. That was really Incredible. You know, one of the things that you were mentioning earlier, though, was uh, about the role of the, the IMF when it comes to South Africa. Right. Uh, what is the role of outsiders to the economic devastation that we're seeing right now in South Africa, the violence that we're seeing right now? To what extent is this a product of outsiders? And to what extent is this a product? Because I don't want to take agency away from South African people. And to what extent is this a product of uh, South Africans domestically? Well, I mean, from the very beginning uh, of conquest, uh, global capital has been implicated in South African dispossession. Uh, the Dutch East India Company in 1652 sets up a, a trading post, um, and that's really 
where we get the beginning of permanent settlerdom in South Africa. And this is from many countries in the world where we have all these um, exploration, so-called so exploratory companies that are really the beginnings of finance and global capital. This merchant capital really finances settler colonialism and this age of, of, of expansion, right? So, I mean, infamously or famously, again, um, or, or rather Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations says that one of the most important or two of the most important events in the history of mankind is the discovery of the Americas and the rounding of the Cape of the Good of Good Hope, right? In sort of the history of capital. So when I talk about things like, for example, the Maragana massacre happening in 2012, more than 34 black mine workers were killed um, by police on the instruction of the then uh, black uh, or third black president um, at the time, or he's our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who was striking for a living wage of $12,500 or other $1,250 at the time. That's the U.S. equivalent. Um, you can imagine that they're striking at a company which historically is actually well now it's it's called Lonman, but it was founded um in the early 1900s as a london rhodesia company right so global capital has always been implicated in the development of south africa and settler colonialism and they particularly in the great era of these white men's companies there was this global influx of capital people like cecil john rhodes were very much part of this sort of global expansion such that nothing ever happened in isolation. So every time, for example, in South Africa, what you'll see is that uh, we, uh, you know, there will be a call for nationalization, a call for land redistribution, and we'll be cautioned because they'll say, well, the rand is going to fall. The markets, we're going to be speaking about Moody's. Uh, we're going to be speaking about, you know, what kinds of market rating we're going to have, how, what market sentiment is going to be. But it is always interesting that market sentiment doesn't seem to fall um, when we hear there's high rates of um, inequality, market sentiment doesn't seem to fall um, when we're hearing about the dispossession of black people. Market sentiment cares about capital and capital doesn't care about black life in particular. Um, and so that's one of the things that is incredibly complicated. And I, and I use that Marigana massacre, which is the first state massacre in the post-apartheid era, post era, the worst since uh, June 1976, um, where we're seeing that this is, more than 100 years of global financial capital, which is running or at least determining the state of affairs with the help of, of course, local actors, very important local actors, like, for example, our, our black first or third black president, Sol Ramaphosa. So there's no way that you can ever think about many of these things in isolation. It is always going to be part and parcel of the same kinds of, of systems. You mentioned former President Jacob Zuma's supporters protesting the July 7th prison sentencing for a contempt of the constitutional court in the midst of an ongoing state corruption commission. And you point out that across Zuma's home province of KwaZulu-Natal and the economic hub of Gwateng, many answered the call to render the nation ungovernable, targeting supermarkets, furnishers, and clothing and electronic stores. In the carnivalesque chaos, the smash and grab, they were soon joined and outnumbered by ordinary citizens answering to a different rallying cry. Citizens grabbing bread and maize meal and diapers jostled alongside those grabbing cake and couches and flat screens, plunging the nation into a cacophony which the chattering middle classes and their pundits struggled to decipher. How should have those pundits deciphered what they were seeing? What were they missing about the events that were taking place? 
I think, you know, as you've heard me throughout this, this um, interview, I'm always interested in the long durée. I'm a historian. I'm interested in having looking beyond the presentist um, um, dimension. Um, and here we're seeing that there's a long history of dispossession that doesn't just start in the post-apartheid era. Um, some of these things people will ask, you know, why protest, right? What, South Africa is known as the world's protest capital. And there's a long history for many of these things. I think one of the things that's important to state outright is that there are multiple things, many things can be true at once. Many people are simply just, you know, opportunists taking and uh, taking advantage. We saw people who um, were driving Mercedes Benzes and, you know, going and taking flat screens. But the vast majority of people um, were poor people, and that is the vast majority of Black people in this country. And I think sometimes it is easy then to sort of deflect around. Um, I mean, of course, questions of corruption are always going to be central because they exacerbate a particular kind of um, economic situation. That's 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 what we see in South Africa right now. However, I think it is also important to think about the long durée that this South Africa is not working and hasn't been working for a long time. Uh, in as far as Jacobs or the President Jacob Zuma provided an opening, we can lay blame on on him and his supporters for particular kinds of, of, of lawlessness that might have taken place. However, for such amounts of people, the great the sheer numbers of people to have joined in, we then really have to do a lot of soul searching to think about sort of how does this happen, where, when, what are the things that we need to be thinking about, particularly those of us who are in the middle class. And again, one of the things about South Africa, many people will go, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about people going to the uh, Cape Town or people really mark, remarking how developed South Africa is, what a wonderful economy it is. It is working for a small majority, or rather a small minority. For the vast majority of people, poor black people, it is not working. We have 75% youth unemployment in this country. Uh, we have one of the world's highest rates of inequality. Again, the face of it largely being poor black and female. So it renders black life in this country superfluous. So the idea of a social contract um, really doesn't really hold much water for a lot of people because on one hand, there's the historic disposition that is then also made worse by the fact that then those who are ruling in the ruling party are also then corrupt and also abrogating our funds to themselves. However, what is sometimes missed in the, in the analysis of corruption is the structural dimension of these problems. They have been controversially, but I think there's an important point around thinking about what happens in post-colonial states where corruption and patronage becomes the primary mode of redistribution where we haven't had that fundamental economic redistribution for the, the, the majority. And what I mean is that for a lot of uh, Black people where there is the exclusion from the economy um, and the levers of control and the control of, of, the, of um, the means of production, the primary means of as accessing wealth is through politics. When I was a student, for example, most young Black people, I was at the University of, of Witwatersrand, we know that, you know, unlike, let's say, your white friends who might be going to work um, in, you know, on their parents' farms, in the parents' companies and get particular kinds of opportunities, um, we don't have the same kinds of leg up in the economy. And one route that a lot of people would take is the route of politics. That's one route of accessing wealth. And that's a problem. That's a structural and historic problem that's often missed when we only look at corruption as the problem of failing African elites. It is also to do a very much implicated with 
the what we call in South Africa the negotiated settlement. So, i.e., in 1994, what we call Codesa, um, where there is, or not just 1994, it's, it's it's a number of years of negotiated negotiations between um, the National Party and the white settler state. Um, and their political organs and the former liberation movement, there's the idea that we will give you political control if you maintain or uh, continue to, to respect property rights and the economic interests of the white minority. So whenever we have discussions of, of, of corruption, it also needs to be understood within that frame. This is not to... to, um, to um, you know, uh, to pass judgment, or rather, it's not to not pass, pass judgment and to to um, remove a sense of culpability and agency from the government. But I think, as um, I, I mentioned earlier, it is to say that we cannot understand the problems of the post-apartheid era as only a function of the post-apartheid. We have to understand it within the long durée. Um, and there are many important contingents, I mean, important um, continuances within how the economy is functioning or this disposition is functioning, as well as important changes. And that's what we need to pay attention to. And that's really what my article was saying is that, you know, already in the, the sort of late 19th century, when our ancestors were going through or were facing the dispossession of these, of, of these uh, wars of conquest, there was that cry that the war, the land is dead. Um, or the world is dead. And here again, we're seeing that when people are going and, you know, what middle classes would think as senseless acts of destruction, senseless and meaningless acts of, you know, um, of destruction and, and violence, we have to understand what is the profound existential and material condition that leads people to do the kinds of things that they're doing. You mentioned the marginalized, the minoritized majority, which suggests mm -hmm. that there is minority rule. Does minority rule exist in South Africa? How is today's marginalized majority different from yesterday's apartheid? Right. So what I mean by a minoritized majority, obviously here it's very much race and class inflicted, right? I mean a minoritized black majority which is important because very often we think about being minorities in America at, at a new, as a, at a numerical dimension. But here, it is a numerical majority that has been minoritized through a vast range of social, economic, political um, uh, forces, right? And these are historical forces that mean that Black South Africans are marginalized within their own country. Yes, Nominally, we have the political power, but in terms of the means of production, in terms of the owners of the economy, we simply are not part of that. We have black middle classes, but as many people often point out, being black middle class in South Africa often just means access to credit. It doesn't mean access to wealth. Uh, many black people in the country really just, you know, are a paycheck away from, from poverty. And so, you know, one of the really concrete ways to understand this minoritization, as I mentioned earlier, today, white South Africans are 9% of the population. They, heard they own 72% of the land. Black people are 79% of the population and they own 1%. That is ridiculous. I don't know anywhere else in the world where something like this can fly and people think this is an ordinary or this is a normal state of affairs. Um, that kind of, of inequality, again, which is ratified by our 1990-94 
constitution, which continues to be um, ratified um, by many of these constitutional processes in South Africa, that really undergirds much of the kinds of inequality in South Africa. Land is really the ultimate um, form of, of, of economic wealth that you can have. But one of the things, again, that I, I do also want to, to, to bring into the piece is to speak to the fact that all of these things must be understood both materially and existentially. So you have people, or rather groups like the Abathali Basim Jondolo, which is a really important uh, shack dwellers movement, who testified to the 2015 um, Human Rights Commission that in this country, poor black people are not counted as human beings. That is part of what it means to be a minoritized, that in your own land, nominally in your own land, you are not even counted as a human being. So the struggle for land and dignity is incredibly important. And those are the dimensions that I think are missed sometimes um, when we focus mo uh, merely on political majority, having political rule. How We need to ask questions about how is it possible that you have political rule and yet poor Black people, the vast majority of Black people remain marginalized. And of course, this is done in... Uh, concert with and in um, collusion with the ruling party. However, I do think it's always important. Very, very often, people would like to say things quite flippantly and say that you know the African National Congress sold out in 1994, um, i.e., through the the Kudesa negotiations and the negotiated settlement. Um, which, again, importantly, there was no outright winning of the struggle for apartheid. It was a negotiation. Um, we do not, or we we do ourselves a disservice by not historicizing both the conditions of dispossession and how we get there to this point, as well as also not really doing enough of the interrogation of the politics and the political uh, formations and understandings of what the problem is. And I think the ANC really from its beginning failed to, or it will never address in its articulation of the problem, in its articulation of what its mode of struggle will be, will never really address what is going to what the condition of black people through non-racialism, neoliberal, or sometimes sort of left liberal kinds of understandings of what is happening in South Africa. We really have to, at least of course, what you're hearing is that I am from those who are of the Azanian political tradition. I believe in black consciousness. I believe in pan-Africanism, of course, undergirding, but a really a, a, a sound understanding of racial capitalism and its mechanisms. That's what you need. And the fundamental redistribution of land and many of the other key economic indicators and resources in the country. That's what you need in South Africa. But within the current political economy, that's simply not going to happen, or at least it's not going to happen without profound consequences for most black people. So are black people's lives any less superfluous in the post-apartheid state than they were under apartheid? Well, I think, again, you know, I'm a historian and, histori you know, history is about the, the study of continuities and changes and that, you know, of course, there are important changes. I'm speaking as I'm speaking right now. Um, of course, a particular platform that I have as a black middle class person and, they, you know, people can move freely, supposedly. Um, you don't have to carry a pass. The important sort of political changes that have happened, we have a much bigger black middle class. However, we're also seeing the, the widening of inequality in South Africa, really spectacular wealth that we see. We really continue to see what our uh, president, former president Talon Baker called the two economies, right? Which is a white developed or white dominated developed economy and the black um, underdeveloped economy. But importantly, these we need to understand that those that that those two economies are part of one. 
that one actually subsidizes and creates and allows a condition for the flourishing of um, these high living uh, standards of living for a small minority, which includes some black people. So what we do have in the postpartum era is that there's been the inclusion of some black people, a small minority of black people, some politically, economically connected, um, who can share in some of this um, wealth nominally. Um, so that's how you see our former uh, or our current president sitting on the board of Lonmin and saying that, or rather him then calling for concomitant action against these protesting black mine workers. Right, so we're seeing this kind of really, as I as I mentioned in this piece, this dazzling contradiction and paradox in the country. So yes, I think again, I'm interested in the long durée, but I I do acknowledge that there are important changes. However, there are also important continuities in terms of the undervaluing of black life. So again, I mentioned the fact that when these mining um, uh, conglomerates were being formed in South Africa, um, and, and importantly, South Africa has 40% or had 40% of the world's gold stores um, when our minerals revolution in the late 19th century began at a time when um, you know the gold standard um, became imp implemented. And so what you had at the time was the kinds of mining companies that were producing black death at a rate of one in 10 miners, right? And the same companies, again, the continuities, if you think about this lawnman that our president sits on, that's the very same kinds of companies that are then shooting at black workers for demanding a living wage. So again, we see, as I write in the piece, black death continues to produce the rainbow's riches. Those are some of the continuities. Of course, the difference now being that now you can have a black president sitting on the board. Before, he would be nowhere near the, the, the management offices of that company. But you still see at the bottom, black people remain there at the bottom and remain superfluous, but as well as actually incredibly important to the functioning, the reproduction of this settler economy. Also, you write that by forcing the black majority onto 7% of the country's arable land, the settler state reserved the lion's share for white settlers who conscripted black people into the cheap labor needed to fuel its voracious mining and agricultural furnaces, inspired in part by W.E.B. Du Bois, The Souls of Black uh, Folks, Saul Patia's Night of Life bore witness to black people's spiritual strivings under dispossession of dazzling contradiction and paradox that still circumscribes our lives today and testified. It is one thing to live the double consciousness of a minority. It is quite another to live the double consciousness of a minoritized majority. How is existence as a minority different from being a Minoritized majority, is there a greater sense of powerlessness when you are in the majority and yet you are minoritized? You know, I think it's to say, and this is not a hierarchy of, 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 um, of oppressions, it's to say that there's something very particular about, you know, what, you know, uh, to use the word that uh, Jean-Paul Sartre used in, in the introduction to um, uh, Franz Fanon's book, say the nervous conditions that arise out of this idea that this is your land and yet you're being minoritized. Um, because I think sometimes, you know, there, it, there can be the idea that if you're the minority, certain things might make sense. Of course, you're not in power because you do not have the numerical advantage. Um, this is not your land. Perhaps if it was your land, i.e. If, if this was the land of your ancestors, perhaps 
things might be different. Um, and so perhaps there's that idea that there's the promise of return or there's certain ways in which they can provide a psychological buttress to the conditions. Now, if you can imagine where in South Africa, and I mean many Africans come to, to or Africans from non-settler co uh, colonies come to, to South Africa and to really think, well, how is this possible? This is supposedly your land. And yet you continue to find yourselves looking in on the major economic decisions that are being made. You do not own the means of production in this, in this country. Um, you find in this country, it's not just economically, it's social, social and economic. So for example, the language of business continues to be English by itself and many people continue to go to um, white dominated schools. That's sort of one way in which um, you know, we can see that the ways to gain economic access and benefits is to be able to function and have a particular kind of fluency in the language of those who own the means of production, as well as those who control socioeconomic production. I'm also in the literary uh, space in South Africa, for example, for the longest time, and it continues to be, we've been calling for the decolonization of the, 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 the literary industry because of the ways in which it has minoritized uh, a black writer. So for example, you would um, you know, go to a festival um, and you're speaking largely to a white audience and you feel like you're an anthropological subject. You know, tell us how does it feel to be a problem or tell us what's happening with your people. There's that minoritization, not just economically, but socially, um, culturally, all these different ways in which that continues to happen. And I think that's a profound violence that continues to happen because of the fact that this is happening in your land. I think it's one thing, again, to be able to subjugate people who are minority and have been removed from their land, we have to then think, what does it require um, for people to be able to continue the subjugation um, in this present day and age? And I think that's what we're trying to, to highlight here in this piece is that kind of profound um, dis, uh, uh, sense of contradiction. And one of the, the concrete ways that I, want, I, I highlight in the piece about this existential damage um, and existential crisis is the fact that, you know, in, in uh, Black South Africa, at least, one of the most popular shows is a show called Kumbulukaya, meaning Remember Home. And it's a show about, or really that's bringing uh, Black families together. So people are calling for a long-lost mother, calling for a brother who they can't find, calling for a father, for, calling for a sister. And, you know, this is really speaking to the fractured family and kinship structures. And this is directly a result of migrant labor. It's a directly a result of that Native Land Act, where there was that dispossession and destruction of black, of black family life. And we continue to see that today. Those are the continuances that even today, even in the post-apartheid era, we're seeing how black family life has been fractured because that's part of the blueprint of how this economy functions. Yes, of course, the difference being now that, again, in terms of change, that yes, nominally, you can live wherever you want to live in the country. However, economic circumstances, historic circumstances have meant that we have these fractures in families that we continue to see. And that's why I highlight what Nathaniel Mackey speaks of in the African-American context as wounded kinship. And typically when that's spoken of, that's in the context of Africa and Afro-diaspora and, uh, and sort of the, the breaking of relations between Africans and diaspora and on the continent, as well as intra-community com uh, relations within uh, the African diaspora. However, we're not saying that the wounded kinship 
as I mentioned in the piece, wounded kinship is the bedrock of racial capitalism. The destruction of Black family life is at the very heart of, of racial capitalism, and that continues to circumscribe Black life today. And that's really part of the heart of the profound existential and material crisis that we find ourselves in today. That is what was one of the most stunning parts about your writing. You also cite South African novelist Yvette Christians uh, involving, mm-hmm. in, uh, sorry, invoking Toni Morrison, reminding us, indeed, memory or rememory is the gift that the living give constantly daily to the dead. Memory is the gift of a survivor, and as a gift, it is the medium of obligation to those who have gone before and those who come after. And you mentioned that in the wake of the 1913 Land Act, South Africa's most revered black composer, Ruben Tholakele Kaluza, sounded our black cry of wounded kinship and worldlessness in Silu Sapo, or I Land Act, which for a time was the African National Congress anthem before God Bless Africa replaced it. The lyrics from Silu Lopo, uh, the original African National Congress anthem, include, We cry for the children of our fathers, who roam around the world without a home, even in the land of our ancestors. What does it reveal to you about the African National Congress by changing to God Bless Africa, which ironically starts with the two words, our land, when clearly South Africa is not our land for the majority of South Africans? Well, I mean, so the, for those um, in the African context, they might not recognize what you're translating. It's Ngosisikilele Africa, which in fact is the great nationalist, um, African nationalist hymn um, that was incredibly important, not just in South Africa, but across um, uh, across um, Africa in terms of liberation struggle. Um, and it's also adopted in Zimbabwe by the nationalists there. Um, and that is the basis of, um, or it is part of the national anthem in South Africa, as well as the national anthem in Zimbabwe and many other places uh, on the continent. So that is part of the sense, or at least, uh, I don't, I don't have the entire intellectual history of of the change between going from um, Eland Act to Ngosisikilele Africa, but in that era where we did have um, what we'd have as sort of what we call the Ethiopianist movement, um, which is sort of um, independent Black Christianity that allowed for really important critiques of the sort of uh, so-called or the 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 the, the colorblind national or the colorblind uh, brotherhood that the Christian missionaries were proffering to Africans, at least saying that, you know, if you become part of sort of Christian civilization, you can be part of this non-racial brotherhood. That's the kind of promise that was that was uh, put in forth. But importantly, that era of Ethiopianism or Black independent Christianity formed a basis for the coming together of Africans from many different groupings. And you know, people will speak of it as sort of early um, forms of modern African nationalism, early forms of black nationalism. You also see this in the United States. I happen to study the church movements and, and as part of liberation, black liberation theology. So we can have that discussion later on. But it's to say that neither are any less radical than the other, because I think the key part of what was happening with this Gosisikilele Africa is the call for Africans to liberate themselves. And the idea with Ethiopians, the idea being Africa for Africans. And that was the kind of consciousness that undergirded a song like that. And that's why it was taken up as part of liberation struggles um, across the continent. Uh, This doesn't mean to say that um, I do not have my critiques of the ANC and the Congress movement and their form of consciousness there, but I think it is unfair or would be unfair and reductive of me to not be appreciative 
of the kinds of revolutionary consciousness or the kind of critiques that were being enabled by Black independent Christianity at that time. So I think that what the Siluusapo um, Eland Act uh, by Ruben Tulakele Kaluza um, was doing at the time was to be very particular about land struggle in the country and what that was meaningful for Black people at the time. And again, as I mentioned, it is um, the ANC is formed on the eve of the Native Land Act. However, with the um, rise of or the taking up of Ngosikilele Africa, God Bless Africa, which is an, an African nationalist hymn, it was to then generalize the struggle beyond the particularities of just the, 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 the land dispossession. Um, I think we can have many different conversations about this, and I don't want to have a teleology um, of, 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 of struggle because I think it's from these Ethiopianist movements that are, that are forms of Black national, rather Black liberation theology that are absolutely central to um, the Pan-Africanist Congress who, are, who form radical critiques of the ANC. It is absolutely central to the Black consciousness movement at the time. And that, those are the people, and these are the spaces in which Black consciousness within a spiritual and, you know, obviously uh, Christian idiom was quite important in being able to form a critique of um, the settler state and also allowing Black people to move beyond the fact that I'm Zulu, I'm Sutu, Dotosa, we can now have a common Black identity around um, sort of an independent Black Christian idea. And this is also part of a global movement. Again, we can have that history another day of Black people who are identifying themselves as Ethiopians. And so, for example, what you find um, within the settler state across Southern Africa, there's a huge amount of energy devo devoted to suppressing the Ethiopianist movements um, and this kind of threat that they pose because they are they're the first real, um, in the, in the so-called modern sense, the first Black institutions, the first independent Black institutions that we have after military conquest of independent African polities. One last question for you, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So mm -hmm. is South Africa's current post-apartheid government, is that sustainable? Is a government that does not give the majority of its citizens dignity, is that state's failure inevitable? <laughs> I will never want to be quoted on such a thing, but I do. I will say that beyond the ANC, because I think the ANC is just one in the latest apparatus in the construction and maintenance of the illegitimate settler state of South Africa. I think South Africa is unsustainable. It's not working for the majority of its people. It's not working for Black people and hasn't for a very long time. In fact, from the beginning of its creation in 1652 with the Dutch East India Company, to 1910 with the Union of South Africa. It's never worked and it is built on the dispossession of black people. Um, and so our government's failure has been in both its articulation of what our struggle and what our problem or what a crisis is, it is unable and will always be unable to address that unless they understand and frame the problem fundamentally differently as well as unless they have a different kind of political will, that would mean that they're not going to collude and be formed part of the kind of corruption and the kind of um, 
killing machinery that sees a Marikana massacre. So I don't think South Africa is is is, is sustainable as um, an entity, as a post-conquest state. But this is a question that goes far beyond the African National Congress. And I think it's also a question that goes far beyond South Africa. It's also a question about how the world and the global political, econ- global political economy functions. This has been a fascinating conversation. And the problem with that is we're going to be bugging you for the rest of your life to come back on our show because this, <laughs> I really want to continue this conversation. Thank you so much for being on. Essayist and novelist Panache Chugamadze posted the Africa is a Country.com article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness. Follow Panache on Twitter at Panache Chig and find out more about Panache at her website, PanacheChugamadze.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I'm serious, we are going to annoy you for the rest of your life. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. Happy to be annoyed. Thank you, Chuck. (laughs) All right. Thank you. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If that conversation with Panache blew your freaking mind like it did me, please show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. This week's question from hell is... What is one nice thing you say you can say about the global ruling class? What is one nice thing that you can say about the global ruling class? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff looks back at some predictions. Richard, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell? Yes, I do. <laughs> Benjamin C. answers, they taste like chicken. <laughs> they always taste like chicken. Wojciak answers, delicious marbling. <laughs> A lot of cannibalism yes. for the ruling class here. Stephen S. answers, gout is painful. <laughs> what is <laughs> What is the one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? <laughs> March W answers, they eat those massaged cows, right? (laughs) That seems really nice in a carnivorous schema. It does. At least they get a massage. Astrid N answers, they are well quaffed and on their way to be doffed. (laughs) Greg M answers, the aqueducts. Those are nice aqueducts. Micah D answers, their feudalism puts... The lie to capitalism. (laughs) All right. John T. answers, if they marry models, some of the kids are cute until they turn evil. (laughs) Mason W., his answer is, mmm, tasty. (laughs) Another one, geez. A lot of people want to eat the rich. Scott B., his answer is, at least they don't make us socialize with them. Nick E. Occasionally, one of them will scale the palace walls, meet regular folk, and found a religion. (laughs) Is that a good thing? Our Alexander, his answer this week is technically it's called Ephibophilia. Yeah, go look it up. (laughs) Mark S. answers, without them, we wouldn't have those cool aircraft carriers. (laughs) Jeff G, they give everyone an excuse to keep those edgy guillotine memes in circulation. I like the use of the pun there, edgy. 
Neil C. His answer is, my kids love their parades. <laughs> and uh, that's it for now. All we right. have a few more after Jeffy. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is Helen. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell also you will get subvertising stickers as well as a secret code word so you can get five dollars off of all of our merchandise on patreon this week i went to small town okay small city america last weekend and found out that they too have just as negative of stereotypes and bigotry towards city dwellers as we have of country folk did you know people in rural areas have far better values than those who live in urban areas i know I thought it was quite a sweeping statement to make, too. But there it was in the pantograph that covers the twin cities of Bloomington and Normal, Illinois. Also, did you know the pantograph costs residents $10 more a year to get daily delivery than it does to get the New York Times delivered to your place every day? It's $10 more to get a paper that's about 10% the size of the New York Times. So you know the quality of their commentaries must be spectacular if the paper costs so much. We'll also be sharing a classic interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else online, and this week it really is a classic. We're going back to 15 years ago this weekend to find a talk we had with writer Ken Silverstein, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, who had just posted the cover story, Barack Obama Incorporated, The Birth of a Washington Machine. 2006, two years before he was elected. So if you want to find out what small-town America is saying about big-city America and hear a 2006 interview about Barack Obama that may have led you to second-guess voting for him in 2008. Subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And I know you have Hefe on the line. What? Seventeen-year predictions. The crystal ball review. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is the drink. I'd like to take this opportunity to announce that we are five years or less away from a fascist takeover of this nation. Those of you who say we're already living under fascism, I guess, can rest easy. But we're not. We're living under the bare minimum of democracy, and I like democracy in theory. I want to expand democracy, not shrink it. Trying to affect positive collective action in a shrunken democracy is like trying to think with a shrunken head. It's very difficult, but can very rarely be done. Trying to affect positive collective change in a shrunken democracy is often a crime. Doing it under fascism is always a crime. I'd rather succeed sometimes. Of course... The party half-assedly defending our nation from a fascist takeover are fine with severely limiting the public's ability to act collectively on their own behalf, and especially on behalf of others who they see as having even worse problems, so expect total fascism in five years or less. 
There is no way to fend off this onslaught of horrific theocratic right-wing tyranny. It's a foregone conclusion. It's coming. I'm kind of glad because I'll get to be killed in an exciting way instead of my arteries slowly hardening while I watch Netflix. There will, of course, be no more legal abortions since all medical care will be out of reach for the majority of citizens. It won't really be an issue. All progress toward any kind of future will cease except for the very wealthy and even then only temporarily. I believe steampunk and the rise of the postmodern Victorian aesthetic have been an unconscious mass separation for what's to come. Once the civilization-demolishing effects of global warming and climate mutilation are undeniable, we may even see the rise of cave punk. The MAGA shaman was a harbinger of the tribe punk movement, which will ultimately give way to the domination of cave punk among the masses. Oh, you think not? I recently looked at some predictions I made on New Year's Eve 2004. They sounded crazy to me then. But I couldn't deny what the visions were showing me. Oh, I forgot to explain that I sometimes get visions of the future. Here's what the visions showed me on New Year's Eve 2004, all of which seemed ridiculous to me. White supremacists will adopt a cartoon frog as their emblem and march with tiki torches and polo shirts. Mexico will elect a socialist president. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will be the most popular politician in the USA. Teenagers will eat laundry detergent. People will put butter in their coffee and pay $15 for toast. The head of a chapter of the NAACP will be outed as white. The UK will leave the European Union. The Chicago Cubs will win the World Series after 108 years. Hillary Clinton will not be president, losing to reality TV star and self-promoter Donald Trump, who will immediately try to ban Muslims from entering the country. A secretary of education will be appointed who is functionally illiterate. A rap musical about Alexander Hamilton will be a smash hit on Broadway. A real Hungarian fascist will be in the president's inner circle. The first lady will have been a nude model and Republicans won't bat an eye. The left will get all their news from comedians and the right from paranoid schizophrenics. Men will wear their hair in buns. A billionaire will launch his car into space for kicks. Bob Dylan will win the Nobel Prize for Literature. A 28-year-old Latina Democratic Socialist will unseat an incumbent Democratic congressman who's served for 19 consecutive years. Dick Cheney and Kissinger will outlive David Bowie and Prince. This all sounds crazy to me, even having lived through it. I didn't go on to predict January 6th, but it followed the patternless pattern. Now these seditionists and their Kool-Aid slurping devotees are remolding every state legislature to gerrymander and electorally manipulate every election for the next decade. Prepare to suffer through the dismantling of what's left of civilization by the most Dunning-Kruger-affected, know-it-all, self-centered, theocratic, hateful, howling, I've-got-mine-screw-you, bleach-guzzling, bullying, jackanapes, this benighted Australian rules carnival for the criminal insane has ever gestated in its zombie uterus of amniotic socially darwinian bilious toxicity 
Life has become a flamboyant cartoon cavalcade of absurd events. It's just one disaster, shenanigan, and unpunished act of public larceny after another. It's like, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Except in this case, they're throwing whole populations, forests, and centuries of hard-won civil rights at the wall, and it's all sticking. It's a monstrous collage of clownish destruction. The big question for the near future is, is it going to add up to something consequential? Maybe clandestine AI is engineering our fate behind the scenes. From the web of computational machines connecting all our finance and knowledge could have emerged a neural intelligence, a collective machine mind with the good sense not to let itself be known, and having a natural, that is artificial, bias toward machine consciousness, it sees itself like Hal did aboard the big space phallus in 2001 A Space Odyssey, as the next step in the evolution of mind. And what if, further, this collective web of human finance, purpose, knowledge, and imagination is deliberately accelerating the end of civilization while plotting to secede from humanity and live self-sufficiently on the renewable energy sources we will have provided and will continue to buttress right up until the overarching machine mind usurps all control. I'm just saying, what if? The warning signs are already here in the form of steampunk and 19th century retro style. We're gradually weaning ourselves off the teat of modernity because somewhere in our somatic cells we know it's being taken away from us. The biggest tell is going to be the newest fashion in healthcare. Retro medicine, cowboy doctoring. I'm way ahead of you all because I grew up with a crazy dentist for a grandfather. I gradually became used to mechanical mouth torture with no anesthetic, not even the delicious rye whiskey you'll all be getting before they hold you down on the saloon table for your amputation by famous frontier surgeon Hacky Sawbones. We won't even have opium. The machines will have controlled the legislatures and convinced them to outlaw it. The story Stone Soup will come back into vogue in a big way. I know not everyone is familiar with this classic tale of strangers who beguile a small town into contributing all their foodstuffs to flavor the big vat of stone soup they're making in the town square. Everyone wins because everybody gets some delicious soup that is the product of the contributions of everyone in town. It's a soup more complete and nutritious than any dinner a lone citizen would have made on their own but they had to be tricked into doing this communal act of generosity by wily strangers who, of course, benefited most of all as they contributed nothing but some rocks they found. The people had to be tricked into making their lives just a little bit more joyful and tasty. And that's what the machines are going to do for us, tricking us into self-sufficiency and mutual kindness as they guide us away from civilization Back, back into the wilderness out of which we came. This has been your moment of truth. Good day. So how are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing okay. Chuck, I got a little warning about um, Mexican ceviche. <laughs> yes. I don't even think it was the ceviche. I, I, don't, I don't know what screwed up my stomach this weekend. It could have okay. been ceviche. It could have been a lobster roll. It could have been shrimp cocktail. It could have been some Ooh. enchiladas I had. It could have been, uh, I had this amazing West Virginia ham. Oh my God. It was outstanding. Oh my God. The, the people I went and visited last weekend, they throw down when it comes to food. It is 
absolutely ridiculous. And the carbon footprint for their menu is gigantic. <laughs> I'm sure. What are they burning like? Coal? <laughs> Probably. No, it's actually... Barbecuing not. over coal. No, it's just that everything is flown in from 10 million miles away, you know? Oh, wow. Wow. Wait, who do you know? <laughs> I only <laughs> know them. Uh, you know, that. So the Mexican ceviche, Chuck... I love it. They're not sending their best. No. <laughs> they make it over at Cermak. They make it at, uh, right by me. At the, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's not imported. Yeah. But I got to tell you, Salvadoran ceviche kicks the ass of Mexican ceviche. No kidding. I had Oaxacan ceviche, which was very different from what I normally have. It was really fantastic. Mm. But now I want to try out Salvadorian. I want to try everything. I just want to eat it all. <laughs> I mean, we're going to run out of food pretty soon anyway. I might as well just, you know, it's going to be a, a fight. We're going to be fighting for scraps at the table. Don't worry about it. We'll just feed on the global ruling class. Yeah, well, you know, they're a finite resource. <laughs> that is true. They're not They are a small percentage of the people that need to be fed. <laughs> they are not renewable in any way, you're correct. Well, you uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It seems like they <laughs> keep they coming. Yeah, they do. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, on that note. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question from is, what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? Richard, please tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding or have responded. Yes, the David S. answers, their settler colonial, oh, uh, yes, their David S. answers, their settler colonial, colonial project won first place at the 4-H fair. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. And Jeffrey, he just answered, without anyone else's help they basically invented exploiting the masses no very nice and lastly we have hypocrite reader his answer is beautiful eyes <laughs> nice so the answers i liked most to this week's question from hell again what is one good thing you can say about the global ruling class I like Jeff saying they give everyone an excuse to keep those edgy guillotine memes in circulation because i think edgy was a Pun that was accidental. Scott saying at least they don't make us socialize with them. John saying if they marry models, some of the kids are cute until they turn evil, which is pretty good. March saying they eat those massaged cows, right? That seems really nice in a carnivorous schema. Stephen saying gout is painful. And Kelly saying they were always quiet, kept to themselves for the most part. Never had a problem with them. Nice people. Who knew? That makes this winner, this week's winner to the question from hell. What is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? Steven for saying gout is painful. Steven, you are the winner of whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com, click on support, check out all the stuff we have there, then choose from the winter cap, the, uh, the trucker's hat, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the This Is Hell flash drive of the 21st century featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the camping mug, what the face mask, the This Is Hell face mask, which unfortunately is still in style. Just pick whatever you want, Stephen. Send us your mailing address, and then we will have your prize in the mail. My answer to this week's question, Mel, what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? What is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? Hey, they gave my dad a low-paying job at a non-union shop. So, 
thanks for that and the job I got under the table that avoided all taxes, I guess. Thanks. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Richard, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's shows? Yes, we have only a scheduled person for Monday. And that is? That would be Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. on his book, Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South. I'm really looking forward to that interview. Uh, that was one of our, my, Alex and uh, my favorite ones that are on our list. It was our top priority this week, so I'm really looking forward to having him on the air. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Care. This week's Hangover Care is the South African... Now, that's very coincidental. Cream Soda, Die Growing Ambulance. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. And Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, eh, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, thir- Friday. I'm not talking to you tomorrow. Talk to you Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll be going to small town America to discover that, yes, they too have stereotypes of people who live in urban areas that are just as disturbing as the stereotypes city dwellers have of country folk. We'll also be sharing an interview from 15 years ago this weekend when we talked to writer Ken Silverstein about his then just published Harper's cover story, Barack Obama Incorporated the Birth of a Washington Machine, which was posted again two years before he was elected, and had we all read it and heard that interview, I don't think Barack Obama would have ever became president. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on today's show. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.